Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times on a bemusing, confusing Monday morning. How does a defender defend? Has VAR helped football? Why are players dropping like flies? So many questions. When is when is a Penenka penalty acceptable? And when will I will I be famous? So many of the big questions will be answered uh, with myself, Hugh Wizencroft, and great journalists from the Times, as we have for you each and every week. Matt Dickinson, Alison Rudd, and Gregor Robertson. How are you doing, guys? Very well, Hugh. How are you? I want to be famous. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. You don't. I still remember some really sad interview. I think I think it was Prince Edward who said you. Uh, was mourning the loss of his anonymity it was and um, I remember being struck by it and thinking yeah fame it sounds overrated funnily enough on the, on the royal point um, the Queen drove past me at the weekend I mean it was, oh, yeah. it, was a, it was a fantastic moment yeah when I got in the car and um, round about 45 minutes or so after um, the Remembrance Sunday stuff had ended in central London obviously I I, well, I say obviously I live close to Windsor and um yeah, you know, you started to see the, the the police motorbikes and the flashing lights and the blacked out Range Rovers. And you thought, who's this coming along, you know, in this part of the world? Because I'm very much towards the Slough side of things rather than the Windsor <laughs> and Eaton Riverside side of things. And um, and yeah, you know, a few moments later, Queenie came by. It was, um, you know, I, I used to work at Buckingham Palace, so I'm not stunned by these things. You know, it it used to be a part of my life, but still nice to say, to say hi to Lizzie. In what capacity? I had a summer job when I was a student for a few years, actually, um, doing visits, tours, you know, right. um, which lots See. of university students do. Yeah, they open up for various exhibitions in the summer. And um, and and thousands of people come in and visit, and you 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 used to be welcomed by someone like me, who was very much sort of front of house and smiley and shouty when I needed people to sort of behave orderly or queue up in a regimented way. That was sort of my my forte. Wow. And, and look where it's taken me. Were you in a beef eater outfit? Or I, I've got. Do you know what I really have to say? The uniform at Buckingham Palace is probably the nicest thing I've ever worn in my life and the most comfortable because when you get the job, there are various hoops to go through. But one of the things is on on your like final um, day before you officially show up for work, uh, a tailor shows up and fits you for your uniform. And it is the thing that I've worn in my life, I think, that was best tailored, best fitting. It was so comfortable. Yes, it was dark blue with red trim and gold buttons. So I did look a bit like, yeah, I did look a bit like a Harrods teddy bear. But aside from that, it was extremely comfortable. You know, I've got to give them credit. They, they did the business for me. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a Republican. So why don't, why don't we just turn this podcast into a whole debate about, about the royal family? We could, you know, appropriate use of taxpayer money or not. Well, Matt, we won't go down that road. I mean, we've got a monarchy of our own. Let's be perfectly honest here on the game podcast as well. I'm not going to call uh, myself the king or Gregor the prince, to be perfectly honest. But Alison, I'm sure, is the queen uh, of football journalism uh, with us today as well, of course, with you. Um, and there's lots for us to discuss from the weekend, lots for us to dissect. Um, in particular, I wondered if we have a better idea of who 
will win the Premier League title after this weekend. The bookmakers currently have Liverpool and City as their joint favourites, with Chelsea and Spurs not too far behind. Uh, well, first half, I-, I was just enthralled, as I'm sure everyone was. You know, you suddenly saw you know Liverpool turning up to play you know at Man City with a four-man front line and you know the the sort of four-two-four approach, and just thought, wow, you know that's in itself. And I just thought that first half was just you know you know sometimes when you say sort of technically tactically fascinating people think that's a euphemism for sort of okay it was a bit chin strokey and a bit dull but no I, th- I thought it was fascinating in every respect I thought you know just to watch the bravery of coaches to watch the way you know there's so much thought has gone into into how they're going to sort of counter each other and then City obviously trying to work out how they play out through that press um, and I thought you know the first half was just yeah, I absolutely. I just was captivated, and then that was such a disappointment that the second half fizzled out a bit. You know, I think both managers will. You know, I thought by the, the last ten minutes, you could see two tired teams thinking, you know what, we'll just settle for this. And so it was sort of underwhelming by the end. But yeah, you were just left with this idea of saying that first half of of how lucky we are. I, I felt. Alison, what did you make of it? Liverpool could have easily been beaten. And vice versa, actually. I mean, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I did. I, I was saying that. I was saying I, that totally tongue in cheek to get you going, and, and it worked. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, I thought. I thought it was more fascinating in terms of what was going on behind the scenes rather than what was happening on the pitch. That I mean, Sadio Mane's brilliance aside, there wasn't a lot to drool about, really. Um, but I liked, well, like is the wrong word, really. I was fascinated by the fact that, um, and I, I've written about this in the game, I sort of got the impression, because the season is so mad, that it's not, it's, it's hard for Liverpool to act like reigning champions. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a way that City did it when they were reigning champions that just made people scared and deferential. And they had a sort the sort of aura of a team that... Um, knows how to win and will win again. It's it, this, Everything is, is, is skew-if this season. So I felt that um, Klopp went into it deliberately as an underdog. And you could say, oh, come on, he played four attackers. That's not underdog. Well, it sort of is, isn't it? He's sort of saying, I, I need to be the upstart. I need to rattle the the, the magnificent City. He, beforehand, he built it up as the most difficult game in, in the world to face City. He deliberately played it as, we're not coming here um, high and mighty. We are coming here to, to do our darndest to unsettle a, a, a great team. And it worked for 20 minutes or so. And then um, everybody got very tired, really. It it, it was it was strange and... Um, I think that when Klopp, the reason he's had this little rant about uh, scheduling is he can see, it's not just his team, it's all around him. People are peaking and troughing almost within halves of football now because it's the, the toll is, 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 is quite severe. But I, 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 I thought probably the most interesting thing about that contest at the Etihad was that, that Liverpool went there um, in a make-believe way that they weren't champions and they had to make their mark at, 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 a, at a supreme club. Very, very peculiar. 
Chelsea and Spurs getting it done at the weekend as well. Um, Arsenal not getting it done. Uh, we didn't think they were going to be title contenders, let's be frank. But Aston Villa uh, beating them 3-0 at the Emirates Stadium is is not what we're... Ex- I'll be fair. It's not what we're expecting at the moment from Arsenal. Mikel Arteta was so highly rated as well. Um, Gregor, I'll come to you on Arsenal, but, but maybe you had some reflections about what happened at the Etihad as well, you know, to... At use, uh, you know, which whichever company you choose, Emirates or Etihad, your preference. <laughs> well, the, the Etihad first. I mean, the 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 fact that Liverpool, you know, you know, we had this whole debate on Thursday. Everyone was saying were they going to play um, Firmino or Jota, and they ended up playing all four. And I mean, you saw there was the average kind of position of the players on the pitch in the Times today, and you just see how ridiculously attacking Liverpool were, particularly in the first. First forty-five minutes, you know, the full-backs push tag. Really, it's kind of two at the back, <laughs> and then everyone else just, you know, Jota was kind of coming in off the right and a little bit deeper, but it's ridiculously attacking. And then the other thing I took away from that was that I just don't think, you know, from what Alison's saying there as well about going to the Supreme Club and kind of, you know, didn't feel like there was the, the, the reigning champions going to, going to to play Manchester City. It was I, I don't think the City team are what they. You know, are what they were. Nowhere near it. I don't think they've got enough players playing at the at their the top of their game, and I think they don't really have enough players whose top of their game is enough either anymore. They're not quite the same. The players have lost, and you know, I look at their midfield, Rodrigo and Gundogan, and they. I, I just don't think. I, I don't really know. They don't have enough legs. They don't really quite have enough creativity. Um, De Bruyne, you know, De Bruyne is is still kind of a magisterial player for them, but Torres is kind of new into the team. Jesus is not Aguero, and he's you know he had a, a, a drill brilliant for the goal, but uh, can can he be the guy that City are reliant upon? I just don't I, I don't think the City team. I think there's still a lot of work for Guardiola to do to, for the City team to get back to the levels that they once were. So I'm not even sure that it's a you know I said last week we saying is this a title you know is this going to be a game between two. The two teams vying for the title. I'm not even sure about that anymore. I'm not even sure that City are going to be the second place team. So um, that was my takeaway from that. If you want to go into the Arsenal game, well, yeah. Before we go into Arsenal, just to, to react to what you were saying there, I, we don't often say this about Jurgen Klopp, but I think he got it wrong. I do think he got it wrong because I, I'm not going to say that he showed City too much respect, but I think he outthought it. He does have the better team, as you're pointing out, Gregor. And he lost a bit of the control of the midfield area against Ilkay Gundogan and Rodri, who you mentioned, Rodri in particular. I mean, he has a nightmare most times he plays or pretty much every time he's played against Liverpool since he's arrived in the Premier League. You know, that is a player who you could have targeted. And even in the second half, there was one point where Sadio Mane, I mean, he walked past him with the ball, basically. You know, just a couple of bits of quick feet, but... You know, you expect that from Sadio Mane. Most players in the Premier League, I think, would have got closer to him than, than Rodri did. You know, it's just a team that he doesn't like playing against. I wonder whether that fourth attacker being put on from the start was meant to was meant to expose him slightly, and maybe Jota and Mane would have come up against him more often. But I, but I, I didn't expect City to have the foothold in the game that they had. I expected more from Liverpool. Allison's right; it could have gone either way. But I think. And I'm sure Jurgen Klopp is happy with a point to keep City at arm's length. But looking at the game, especially 
sort of around the hour mark, I was thinking he could have maybe changed this a little bit sooner. And actually at half time, speaking to my Liverpool mates, I expected him to make a change in midfield and bring on my Liverpool mates wanted Milner, but I was, I was hoping that maybe someone like Cater would come on in the midfield, but he got a point and again, you can be happy with it, but I think, I think Liverpool could have done more on the day, which has furrowed Alisson's brow. Well, he, he, he has to, I think Klopp is, I don't know when he's going to stop having to do this, actually, and it may continue all season. But I feel he has to provide a distraction to the fact that he doesn't have Virgil van Dijk there. He's, he's sort of he's, it, uh, the four attackers was a sort of look, look, the, look over there, but not there. You know, d- don't don't focus on the fact that at the back we are not not as good as we were last season. So it, that gives teams hope. It really does. And um, for the City goal, you could see, oh, no, if only Virgil had been there, that wouldn't have happened. So he he's, uh, yes, he has a better team if, than City, but he doesn't have, he doesn't have a defence that is scary anymore. So I think, I don't think he overthought it, Hugh. I just think he felt he had to go into it in a certain mindset to, um, compensate for the fact that he's constantly changing his central defensive partnership and that is not a good thing and in some ways always changing it is again another distraction I think but it, it's it's not overthinking so much as compensatoryness. compensation <laughs> is probably the word yeah compensation <laughs> Gregor, let's go to the uh, Emirates then next. I'll, I'll leave Liverpool on Alison's final opinion there. Um, and I, I think I've been told by her response as well. So I'll take <laughs> that one on the chin. Um, Aston Villa were fantastic, yes. But you don't expect performances like that from Arsenal. And you don't expect really their previous run of performances, even though they got a result at Old Trafford, um, they haven't scored a goal from open play in, what, six hours now? And uh, uh, thrashing at home by Aston Villa, you know, Liverpool fans will tell you that could happen to anyone, but really it's still surprising. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was kind of the, the lacklustre nature of the display as well. There was moments in the first half, the kind of moment where there was the the, the kind of triangle of, of Grealish, Barkley and... Uh, target the left back and they were just toying with Arsenal mm. you saw Barkley standing over the ball and kind of wave, waving his foot around kind of like I'm going to go I'm going to go and the Arsenal fans didn't even want to get close to them they looked that like was they, embarrassing. Were, they looked like you know there was there was no kind of coherence in the way they were going to deal with those players trying to create an overload on them and they also looked like they had no energy either and Willie, Willie in particular looked like he was knackered um and, you know, then you've got to come down to the fact that Arsenal just aren't really looking that much of a goal threat. You know, they've, they, throughout all the, this period and when they haven't been scoring enough goals, they've generally looked pretty solid and looked well-organised. And that was completely thrown out the window today. But they still didn't look like they were... Uh, sorry, Stan, they still didn't look like they were going to score a goal. Lacazette, it, and the number of times we've seen Tierney crossing a ball and, make you know, putting a, a chance on a plate for Lacazette and he's and he's missing. Um so if that's your front three, Lacazette, Blopar, Willian looked like he was absolutely blowing. And Aubameyang, really, he just kind of looks a bit isolated in this team at the moment. So, yeah, definitely issues for, for Arteta to work on. I, I still come back to the fact, personally, and I know, you know there's this, this train of thought, school of thought that Arteta is getting, getting off lightly and the media are sort of giving him an easy ride. 
I still think you can see the plan. I still think, you know, if you look at their team, there are still players, Rob Holden, for example, there's a reason why he nearly went off, went out on loan to Newcastle on the season. He was excellent against Man United, but are you going to rely on him every week to be a solid defender in Arsenal's team? I don't think so. And I think there are a number of players like that. And again, if you look at the players in reserve and the players who are coming on, Pepe, Nketia, Ceballos, none of them have pulled up any trees. So there's still a lot of this is down to personnel, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you met Gregor mentioning there the, the the sort of tyranny to Lacazette. I mean, I was at the the Leicester game a couple of weeks ago, and it felt like that was the sort of felt like I was watching the same game being played all over again with some of those Lacazette miss miss chances. Um, that was a, a a problem then. I mean, I know he got the ball in once against Leicester, and it was maybe harshly ruled out. But yeah, it, the the lack of punch from him is a continued problem undoubtedly you know Aubameyang as as has been well sort of written since he um everyone pleading for him to commit and since then since he signed the contract he seems to have gone gone flat on everyone um but yeah I I think that say that Leicester game almost sort of didn't quite yeah well maybe did foretell of of something like this in the same way that they you know well, at least against Leicester, they had a decent half before getting sort of smacked on the nose. Um, but it just, it, yeah, their home, their home form. Um, so certainly, the home lack of punch is, is is this was not a one-off. More worrying, I would have thought, is I I, I think uh, we all had the impression that Arteta's was plan was to make Arsenal a bit of a machine, um, get the defence right. Um, make sure that they were, they weren't soft anymore, uh, because that had been the accusation for so long that they just just lacked bite. But their what was weird was that they allowed them the defence to be pulled all over the pitch by Villa. So if you looked at any snapshot of their defending at the Villa goals, their their back line was was a joke. It was all over the place. There was no straight line at any point. They were they were pulled and tugged. And lacked that sense of discipline that I assume the reason Arsenal were not scoring goals in open play and they were quite dull to watch, but grinding out just enough results was because he was sorting out at their mentality at the back and their, their ability to concentrate for 90 minutes. Well, they didn't, they didn't, as he admitted, actually, Arteta, they, they lost concentration from the first few seconds. But that is, that is utterly bizarre for, for a manager to be working so openly on something that then is so easily unravelled. And it's not as if it's the first game of the season and he didn't know what Villa could do. Villa were a surprise at the start, but now we know about their pace and that when they when they get going on the counter, they, they, they look um, they look very similar to Leicester, actually. They look, they look sharp and good and uh, confident. Arsenal didn't seem to feel they had the... The, the ability to stand up to that, which which is very strange when you think about what Arteta has been working on. I think we, we have to give Villa some credit at this point, absolutely, because they look like they're having fun. They really look like they're having fun and they're a team on the pitch, you know? It's like you've got... I mean, Grealish, we, we know we've, we've spoken about Grealish enough and, how, and his talent and the way he carries the ball is, is just remarkable. Barclays is kind of a new lease of life. Trezeguet has even kind of stepped up to the mark. And Watkins has, does that thing now in that he can stretch and he can also hold the, hold the play up. So he off, he's a really kind of, you know, offers different, a variety of options for, for Villa there. And behind them, McGinn, you know, McGinn's full of running. And Louise, the ball that Louise played for, 
for Barclay to to cut back across for the for Watkins first goal was was superb. And they're you know they're they look like a, a well balanced team. And Dean Smith was in quite interesting afterwards too, and he said that we, we looked you know we looked at the stats beforehand and Arsenal have scored the most goals from open play from the goalkeeper. So you know he, we've spoken about this before, particularly when Arsenal played Liverpool. They, doesn't matter what you do. They're playing against the best pressing team in, in the world in Liverpool and they still try to build out from the back. You know, even in passing the ball into their own corner flag, they try and build it, find a way out. And Villa saw that and they pressed them really, really well and kind of relentlessly. And so I think I think Dean Smith actually deserves credit kind of for his kind of tactical, tactical approach in the way that this Villa team are playing this season. So definitely lots of optimism for them. And with a buzz, like you say, I mean, the Barkley thing is fantastic to see, isn't it? Because he's, you know, uh, you know, with an England hat on as well. I mean, uh, personally, I'd, I think England should be looking to set up 4-3-3. I'd much prefer than the system they've got. And in that system, Ross Barkley could be, you know, on this form would be fantastic as the sort of one of the number eights, you know, um, between, you know, bombing forward playing off one playing off the strikers he's just got a real panache back to his game and it's you know when you consider that you know we've been yeah he's he's sort of threatened so much when he was young and then we did wonder whether he's going to become those sort of what if players um that just never quite fulfilled himself and um you know when you see suddenly someone you know come back and hit their stride like this you know it's it's you you, you get hopeful for him and and say uh, for the England team if he can be given that run in the side. In the side. Yeah, no, Ross Barkley, I think it looks like, well, he, he, Ross Barkley was nagged and nagged while he was at Chelsea. He was told he had not been taught properly at Everton, that his discipline was not there and he had to work harder on understanding the game. And you could sometimes see it when he played for Chelsea. He was concentrating too hard to actually enjoy himself and to express himself. And he's gone to Villa and they've clearly just said, well, you know, you're, you're, you're our star act, really, mate. Go on, just express yourself. And he's so, he's so happy, isn't he? He's so happy not to have that burden of you're not quite good enough, which is what um, Sarri gave him at Chelsea, the sense that he had much to learn and he needed to work harder. And that inhibited him. And you could sometimes look at his face and he looked really confused as to, am I supposed to be... Am I supposed to be expressing myself or am I supposed to be thinking about tactics here, which meant he often had a very dull game? Um, Smith has just said, well, you know, we're very lucky to have you have fun. And it's that can often backfire, I know, but it's certainly worked in this case. And it, you're, you're right, Matt. It's nice to see him back looking like he could be a flair player for England. And that moment in the corner, again, I'll refer to that once again, that kind of encapsulated the kind of spirit Miller playing at the moment. They just kept, it was supreme, supremely confident of being able to keep possession and hold off defenders. And, you know, there's a little back heel on the byline back to Grealish. They just kept knocking it about to each other until the moment came that, that Target made a run in behind. He was still clearly going to be onside. They slipped him in. Goal. Brilliant. Yeah, you could have been watching, you know, Manchester City or Liverpool score that Absolutely. goal, to be perfectly yeah. frank with you, especially against Arsenal. Great goal, great performance from Aston Villa. But how much do we think some of the results this weekend were down to fatigue from the teams that were playing in Europe? Because Jurgen Klopp was very, very vocal, but he wasn't the only manager of a club in Europe who was vocal this weekend about a lack of rest for their players. Um 
you know, Manchester United played on Wednesday. They had the 12.30 kickoff on Saturday. Chelsea also played on Saturday, having played in the Champions League on Wednesday. Spurs had the early kickoff on Sunday, having played on Thursday night as well. And in fact, City and Liverpool actually got the most rest because they played on Tuesday night in the Champions League. But because that was a big fixture for the TV guys, that was at 4.30 on Sunday. Um, Do you think, firstly, before we go on to you know, the issues around scheduling of games, that fatigue has played a part in the results of some of the bigger teams. Matt? Um, well, I think it's playing a part generally. I mean, I think in, in that and injuries. I mean, I think Martin Ziegler did a piece last week, didn't he, on um, on injury rates going up and, and, you know, managers talked about it over this sort of very unusual period and there's stats to back it up. So, you know, I think that's, yeah, and that's onto the five sub um, rule row as well. So, you know, I think, I think, yeah, say man- managers are, um, yeah, they see it anecdotally and they have figures to back up that their players are at greater risk um, at the moment. You know, if we're then moving on to the, that broader debate, I mean, I, you know, a manager might just say, well, I, you know, I just manage the club. But, I, you know, it's quite funny to sort of see how it's sort of talked about as if it's in the third party. I mean, it's the clubs that sign up to these deals with the TV companies. It's the clubs that, you know, have the chance before they sign that deal to say, we refuse to do it on these terms. So, you know, if, if the clubs have got a ruck, they should be, the you know, managers have got a ruck. They should be going to their chief executives and their chairman and saying, you know, why do you keep signing up to this? Not just screaming at broadcasters who, oddly enough, want to do what's right for them because they pay a lot of money for it. You know, it, it just seems a bit weird to sign a deal and then blame the person you signed that deal with rather than looking at yourself. Gregor, in footballing terms, tell us the difference between Jurgen Klopp's spoke about the fact that a 12.30 kickoff made a difference to the body. And he said, at least for the play, the teams that played in Europe, give them a few extra hours, a 4.30 kickoff, a three o'clock kickoff. How much of a difference does that really make? You know, one day, possibly a big difference compared to a few hours? I think part of that is psychological, actually. It's kind of, and you know, you, you kind of get the mental rest to a bit longer in bed rather than getting up early, having to eat at specific times and all that kind of thing in your preparation before the game. It's all much more immediate. As I think personally that's more psychological than three hours more rest into your legs. Um, but I, I agree with that. I mean, the other thing to consider is that this is, you know, we've just been having a huge conversation about these elite clubs trying to reduce their number of domestic fixtures, not to ease the the workload and the players, but to increase the number of European and, and overseas fixtures. So the idea that this, this is kind of there may be, you know there may be some welfare concerns from the manager at the moment, but there's there's not anywhere else in the rest of the club. And they have enough players. They hoard players. And they <laughs> the the only reason they're not kind of changing their team more often is because they want to play their best team and because the, the pressure's on to get a result every week. And I think, you know, we're probably coming to talk about the substitutes as well. And I think that it's it's a it's a ridiculous conversation because you, five substitutes doesn't, you don't make a substitute to prevent an injury. Very rarely does that happen. The injury comes, comes out of the blue. It's a click of the fingers. Like Trent Alexander-Arnold was running back and he felt his calf. Because they had five subs, that wouldn't have made any difference. I, you know, and you can change the team beforehand. It's only what you can do in-game. That's, that's only, it's... I think that's very marginal, personally. He, he could have made more changes to the team before. He could make more changes next week. These arms are not tied in that respect. So I, I, I'm not having it. I, I think 
I can I can understand I can understand <laughs> that that they they look and they look across the rest of Europe and think this is unfair, but I personally I'm on the side of the rest of the clubs who think if the team is if they're drawing one all with fifty you know say Sheffield United are drawing one all with Liverpool with ten or fifteen minutes to go, and Liverpool bring on a whole new front three, personally I think that that is just as important. This is where I looked at Alison Rudd to inject some some empathy for the players. Do you have any? Well, the empathy comes from the fact that they've had not enough time to prepare for the season. They 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 didn't have the requisite amount of rest that you need because of COVID and they've come back not fully conditioned. So we're going to see a lot of injuries and it's bringing, it's sort of, they're being disingenuous, the manager's slightly saying that it's about kickoff times because that is relentlessly their argument they get cross about uh, it being unfair that they're they're on a few hours earlier than they wanted to be and so on and we've always had that problem we don't we don't look after english teams we don't look after them in, in you know european teams they put europe first and make sure that their domestic fixtures are beautifully laid out for them so they can compete well in europe that that has been going on and on and on and on and, and always will as matt says because we have um different powers at, at work here but the players i do have sympathy because they're they're, they're playing a more intense fixture list with, with with less preparation for it so you are going to get lots of injuries and the only way around that is to be imaginative with your rotation imaginative with the physio work you do with players being alert to um foreseeing the sort of muscles that might breakdown, looking at player history and seeing how they've done in the past over a certain length of period of intense play, just being cleverer about it. I don't think switching a kickoff time from 12.30 to 5 o'clock is going to make that much difference. But I have to say, I agree wholeheartedly with Gregor about the substitutes that, again, they're being disingenuous. They're mixing things up. It does not help prevent a calf injury if you if you know you can make a triple substitution at halftime. What it means is that you have an advantage if you're one of the bigger clubs with the nicer players on the bench. So we wouldn't, no, none of you would change to five subs, maybe compromise on four subs? Four and a half, surely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they don't, as I say, they don't, it, the only time we saw it, and even in the last, uh, you know, when the re- project restart, at the end of last season, the only time we saw people make five subs was when they were either three or four nil up or when they needed to go and win a game and they were behind or they were a drawing or something like that. It was a tactical change. It's nothing to do with the fitness of the players. The fitness of the players, if your players are struggling, don't play them from the start or don't play them next week. That's It's as simple as that. Matt's nodding in agreement. I'm sure Alison agrees as well. I've got very little sympathy. You know, are they going to give back the uh, 20% of the TV deal or whatnot? Because that's essentially what extra money is on there for the broadcasters to have the ability to choose. And it wasn't too long ago that clubs like Liverpool and Manchester United were looking for a deal of their own where they were able to to shape and mould things going forward. So, uh, yes, I, I think it's a roundly all four. We've all given the golden buzzer there. Absolutely no chance of things changing. (laughs) Uh, And there weren't just complaints about the scheduling this weekend as well. Up next, we'll talk 
about the video assistant referee system that clearly remains public enemy number one. But a reminder, you can enjoy more of our award-winning sports journalism. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today. You'll get yourself one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Well, there are a couple of controversial handball decisions in the Premier League this weekend. Eh, offside as well. It seems like we're entering the realms of, of the VAR system being sabotaged. It's like officials want to show us that the rules are an ass. Let's put it that way. Max Kilman of Wolves, his handball against Leicester wasn't handball for me, but Liverpool's Joe Gomez versus City was a penalty for me, my opinion only. Uh, Patrick Bamford's offside against Palace, one of the weirdest examples of a slither being offside. We've seen lots of toes being given offside before, but the first time the, the top of the arm has been offside. We've had armpits. Um None of us can really understand what's going on, to be perfectly honest. I think Bamford was a big shock to football fans. Some even debated the penalty given against Saeed Benrahma against Fulham, which I thought was actually a pretty obvious call. But there you go. They didn't think so on match of the day last night. So it seems everyone's confused, including former England forwards. Um, Is it the beginning of the end, I'll ask you, for the system? Because we all expected evolution and it seems like we're getting regression out of this. Alison, what do you think? Oh, definitely. I hope it is the beginning of the end. I want a big, a big explosion. I want all the monitors at Stockley Park to go and for the um, the VR officials to wipe their brows with relief as they leave and go back to running around on the grass and in the fresh air. I mean, that's probably part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, if you stick somebody in a booth for long enough, they'll start seeing ghosts and maybe that's the next thing that'll happen next weekend or weekend after when after the international break will have they'll have VAR officials saying they they saw a spectre coming in and taking the ball off somebody and it was probably just just, just the snow you get on a bad signal I mean it's, it's become utterly ridiculous I never wanted I never wanted VAR in the first place and I don't want to sound too, too pleased with myself that it's completely imploded but it it's a mess it's a mess because people uh, people expected too much from it, and we keep forgetting all it is is someone, somebody else, another human being looking at a monitor in a darkened room. That's all it is. And it's if you look at something too long and for too long. And one of the things they promised me when I went to Stockley Park was that they understood perfectly well if you slow images down and you look at them for a long time over and over again, you might see things that aren't really there and they're aware of that and they've trained people not to think overthink it and but they've they have they have been incapable. The human the human being is incapable of dealing with VAR, so get rid of it until we have robots that can. Matt, your turn to defend it, definitely. <laughs> okay, here we go again. Um, I'll, I'll get him a turn. If no, we as I mean, humans can't, can't get this right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. The, uh, no, I mean, you know, there are bits that I, I, I you know, the, penal- the penalties, I mean, you know, the reason behind them going for this handball rule is because the game has said, you know, we want consistency, we want consistency, and they've tried to deliver a law that makes it easier to be consistent. But I, I think they've got it wrong. I mean, I prefer to be inconsistent and and it to have a, a, the, the human touch. I prefer a referee to see an incident and think, yeah, uh, you know, the, the, interpret- the guidance uh, stroke rules law on handball used to use the word deliberate. Um, and, you know, that... <laughs> 
then it was up to the referee to interpret that deliberate and I would prefer that to still be the case and in the worst cases for it to be flagged up back to the clear and obvious error that's that was the the clear and obvious error was the first principle of of sort of VAR if you like and I think that's that's been lost and I I think that's that's where we you know if we are losing our way with it that's where we are and I think I think it can be saved it should be saved I think we're as Gregor says, I, um, as I've said many times, I think we're pretty bloody stupid if we can't save it and make it work for us. But I think it's, yeah, we've sort of got gone down a rabbit hole of seeking some kind of weird perfect, perfection on it that's unobtainable. Ultimately, you know, around a lot of these in- rules, uh, laws, there's going to be a degree of interpretation and we need to work out a system of VAR that, still allows that. I think they maybe shot themselves in the foot a little bit by changing after a couple of weeks the handball um, interpretation, didn't they? Because it was absolutely dreadful at the start of the season, but it was consistently dreadful. It seemed to hit the arm and it was a handball. And at least we had some knowledge of what a handball, even though none of us agreed with it, looked like. Now, even the referees seem to be confused by what a handball is because now they've seemed to create an, an even bigger slice of leeway around the interpretation that Matt was referring to. Um, Gregor, what did you think of this weekend's decisions? Um, the one against City for Joe Gomez, Max Kilman for Wolves against Leicester. Were they handballs for you? No, you would not be surprised to hear me say that. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it is important, what the, as Alison referenced there, that what you're seeing on the screen and what you, what the referee, even when he's asked to go over and, and check it himself, what he's looking at, the slow motion, and it's very different to the reality and and what the what, is, what the defender is capable of, in fact. And if he's not, if he's if, if he's basically not able to avoid the, the ball hitting his hand, I can't see unless he's standing in front of the goal, and it's a clear goal. I can't see how it should ever be a penalty, personally. So, you know, that it's not quite the same as intent. It's not saying he has to intentionally handball it. He has to have the chance not to. That's really, that's that's where the line should be drawn for me. And in both those instances, I don't think he had the chance not to. Because Gomez, if you've ever tried running kind of back towards goal while looking sideways, you can't do that with one arm behind your back. You will fall on the floor, basically. And Kilman was, I can't remember what it was, but it's like two metres or something from the player. And the, the idea that he could have avoided that is ridiculous. And I know that that's not the law now, but the law is an ass. It's like the law is not the law is not something that, that we should kind of, it, it shouldn't be. It can't ever be that kind of steadfast and, and a line in the sand. It can't be. Because we're just learning that VAR has opened up whole new layers of subjectivity. There's no such thing as a kind of definitive rule on to something like handball. And there's got to be a sense of the, you know, the, the punishment has to fit the crime, doesn't it? And in Gomez's case, you know, he he is in the he is actively trying to withdraw his arm. You know, he realizes you know the position he's in. He realizes you know in the microsecond he's trying to get out of the way. And and yeah, I, you know, I think ultimately that's that's again you come back to sort of first principles of sort of you know crime and punishment and and in football you know a goal um, you know is is you know there's it's a very low scoring sport and a penalty is a hell of an opportunity to score one so uh, you know the, the, this plethora of penalties is you know is it is disfiguring the game 
I've always disagreed with the punishment fitting the crime when it comes to penalties because I, I actually think such a small percentage of penalties, even before VAR came in, fit the crime. A foul in the box is a penalty. A player could be with his back to goal on the corner of the penalty spot and if he gets fouled, it's, it's a goal-scoring opportunity apparently and someone gets a free shot of goal. I mean, it hasn't always fit the crime anyway. So I'm not sure they, they've broken the boundaries on that. A foul isn't, you know, that may not be may not be intent, but generally, you know, you go into a tackle, or you, you know, you, there is an act of probably of clumsiness or of misjudgment involved. I think in Gomez, you're not. There's no act mm, of misjudgment mm, involved. Saying. You know, he's he is in the process of running when someone whack, <laughs> whacks a ball into his arm, and and he's even trying to get it out of the way. So I, I think that's that is where there's a sort of say it doesn't all, you know doesn't mean that every penalty has to come out of some deliberate act but i think you know there is there are you know mistakes give away fouls whereas i don't think you know a lot of these handballs there's even the beginnings of a, what anyone would fairly call a mistake Alison looks like she's thinking for a, of her dissertation title on this subject <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really want to ask her what the title's going to be uh, well, it's just—it's so ironic. I mean, it's—it would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad for the game. But it's so ironic because people started many years ago thinking about using technology in this way because they—they they didn't want people, they didn't want fans to, to leave a game or be sat at home thinking we was robbed. Why on earth did no one see the obvious? Um, red card offence or the ball crossed the line so clearly and people would come away with feeling that justice had not been done and the idea was that if you introduce technology fans everywhere would feel oh you know you know goodness reigns everything's right with the world nothing has been missed and instead the exact opposite has happened in that there's this huge cloud of injustice now hanging over the game where the Managers, players, fans are angry and perplexed, and I think it's it's undermining the uh, profession of of refereeing as well because th- there's no way they can look intelligent now. There's just no way they can. And they, and I know in the past sometimes the referee would get called all sorts of names and they would miss things, but at least they were honest and they were there and they were doing their best, as indeed everybody else around them on the pitch was. Hang on, hang on a minute. Let's let's not go back. Let's that talk. You know, that there was a time pre VAR when basically referees got called muppets pretty much on a daily basis by some manager who just came out and said, "You're bloody useless." They were all sorts of inferences about fairness or otherwise there were i mean the pre-var world was one where referees were made to feel useless and worse um uh am i allowed to use you know, the wanker in the black on this or is that going to get cut? <laughs> but, you know, effect, effectively you know they've been they've been punch bags forever so that you know in all of this var debate let's also remember that there is no version of any rule or any system or anything in football that is going to send everyone home happy. The fact is, we've the culture is around basically saying the man in the middle is a. I've used the word before, and um, yeah, that's that ain't changing. I just think it's depressing, though. Personally, like if you, it's just dominating. It really is. It's kind of dominating football a little bit now, and. I think we're on course to have double the number of penalties that we would in a, kind of an ordinary season. That's changing the kind of fabric of the game a little bit, really, to be honest. And but the, you know, just the, the discussion around it. I know we're talking about it again here, but it's kind of even just see. I, I get depressed just seeing the lines drawn on the pitch. You watch them doing that to Patrick Bamford, and you think, what? What on earth are we doing here? What is this? 
And then like Villa scored a goal after 48 seconds against Arsenal. And it took five minutes for the game to restart. It's like, maybe not five minutes, it took a long time. They played 48 seconds of football and it, and it took longer than it took Villa to score a goal to decide whether it was a valid goal or not. This is just a nonsense. It's got so bad, Hugh, that we haven't even felt the need to discuss the fact that it's ruined football by taking away the celebration. We've all come to accept now we can't celebrate a goal. Right, well, I, I agree with you on that one. I think, once again, we're all in agreement. This is crazy. Um, I, won't, I won't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that I would say is, I think VAR is is a good for the game. I just think it is now maybe too far reaching and we need to sort of come to a consensus on certain parts of the game that we feel like it shouldn't really get involved with. And I know that again will be a bigger argument, but maybe we can sort of draw the line in the sand at some point and, and move on. Cause I think even Jose Mourinho the other day was saying, um, I love my football with goal line technology. You know, I love my football the way it was, but with goal line technology. So maybe there is a system that we can agree on eventually. Um, on Patrick Bamford, though, I know you mentioned it, Gregor. How far does your membership of the Defenders Union go? Um, when you were watching that, how are you feeling? Because all I could think of was recently Sadio Mane, you know, in the Merseyside derby. And I thought, well, if that's offside, you know, that he's back to the, what, the, the byline, you know, 25, 30 yards wide of goal. Um, if that's offside... And in a moment like that, as great as the football was and in a, a game of that magnitude, if that's offside, then if the, the laws are in the book, the top of the arm is offside, it just looked weird, but it's off or am I wrong? Well, you're right by the, the by the laws of the game again, but I just think we're completely kind of got this warped view of what... A warped, it's a warped reality now of what kind of offside is supposed to be. You stop to, to stop giving a player an advantage a big advantage over a defender and Bamford was really behind the defender and he was pointing towards where obviously everyone knows this he was pointing towards where he wanted the ball to be so you know there's just the whole issue now about what you can kind of can do with your arms and I find it depressing watching defenders running out to to, to confront an attacker and now have, and immediately putting their arms behind their back and it, I just think it's just, it's not it's not natural it's, as, it's asking players to do things that are no, no longer natural and I know they can you know they can learn to adapt to things but you know is, is it worth it I don't think it's worth it it's not improving the game I'd, I'd agree with that I'll give you the last word on that topic as well uh, Gregor as we move to what's the last word in the game on this Monday morning as well and it focuses on well I guess something that would have made um, Fulham fans infuriated the rest of us little wry smile as we watched Adamola Lookman try and take a Penenka penalty in what the 96th, 97th minute to score an equaliser in the London derby away from home against West Ham. And it would have been a big point for Fulham, as we know, struggling towards the bottom of the table as well. But he tried a Penenka. And let's put it this way. He is not Antonin Penenka. He does not play for Czechoslovakia. It is not the final of the 1976 Euros. He is not going to be an immortal in football terms. Um... Is it ever right? I think we ask in the game, is it an unnecessary showboat or a clever technique? Um, have you ever taken up an Enco, Gregor? <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> you drive me as a sort of guy that, that had something up their sleeve on penalties. I whipped the ball as hard and as fast as I could into the corner every time. Uh, I admire, you know, part of me admires when a player has the confidence to do this. Uh, and if it's executed well, 
And if you know that the goalkeeper is someone who's going to kind of pick a corner and go that way, then you know it's it's just the same as a player t- hitting the ball down the middle. It's just kind of a bit more impudent. So you know, part of me feels like you know he had the confidence to try it, but it has to go in. And it can look, and it's not even you know you can do it sometimes, and the and the goalkeeper dives and kind of sticks up a hand or whatever. But it was just so badly executed as well that you just saw his kind of face, his face afterwards, and you thought, oh my god, this is going to haunt him for a while. I think if you were his teammate going back into that changing room, what what words would you have spoken to? Well, him? This is another thing. You want, the next question is: is there a time and a place for this kind of thing? And is is injury time when a when a a very valuable point is on the line, the time or the place. But then you see people doing it in penalty shootouts and you, you know, it's all about whether it's going to work or not. So, and again, I think if he'd, you know, if he'd executed it a little bit better, it might have, but um, he just completely messed up. And it was, it was one of those moments that you just, you know, your kind of, your jaw, your jaw hits the floor and then you're thinking, I actually feel sorry for him afterwards. You know, I know there's a lot of people, you know, will be coming out and saying he's an idiot and he shouldn't have tried it, but I felt really sorry for him. And I think, I think he would have been feeling the heat in the changing room afterwards too. It reminded me of, um, just to jump sports, it was sort of reminding me of, I think, what is it, um, you know, Ian Baker Finch up when he, you know, he, um, at the open at St Andrews and I think he hiked off the first tee um, out of bounds on the, the St Andrews old course which is almost impossible to do but it was you know it's like watching a, a professional sports you know it's, it's to to fluff it to fluff it as Gregor says that badly not even to not even to he doesn't even kick the ball right I mean it's um, yeah it's like it's 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 a yeah it's like hiking one off the first tee um, for a professional golfer it's it's, it's that bad and uh no, I mean it almost. I mean, I can feel myself almost. Sort of, it almost makes you cringe. Cringe, your skin crawl. Even I was watching it again last night, just ahead of this. Just every time, you know, even the fiftieth time you watch it, you want to sort of crawl into a hole on his behalf, basically. And yet, but I, I mean, I'm mean, lucky. I've seen two of the um, two Penenkas. Uh, I saw was there where Perlo did it on Joe Hart in, in Euro 2012, and it felt like. It felt like a moment in the sense that it felt like ah okay they, they've got they've got Perlo doing that we haven't and it, it it almost felt like sort of psychologically you've just been punched in the face basically and um, and then I was there for Zidane the two thousand and six one which that that one felt different that one you know it clipped the underside of the crossbar and I think I mean yeah I'm not saying there and then anyone thought yeah you know. I bet that bloke's going to headbutt someone in uh, in an hour's time in the in the biggest <laughs> last game of his life. But it it, I think I, I think everyone sort of thought, oh my God, that is incredibly audacious. Being Zidane, he's got away with it. But it also felt like within an inch of you know, well, it was within an inch. It it clipped the crossbar, and it felt it felt like wow. Um, was that either was that ballsy or was that reckless or was it was it almost both? Um, but he scored it, so the, you know the thin line between genius and madness. I yeah, think we got it, to see. Yeah, it's the thin line between being a foreigner and being English. It's the thin line between it, we're a bit sniffy, actually. I think the the English about being so cocky in that moment. Because do you remember? I'm going to say I want uh, Gregor to tell me Jan Kermagant. Is that how you say it, Gregor? I do, I, I'm, I'm feeling because anyway, he 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 tried. Um, well, everyone assumed he tried a Penenka in the playoffs for Leicester about ten years ago, and um, 
it didn't work so they lost and there was a song written overnight about it it's, you know um along the line it was beautifully rhymed it's something like you know you, you, if we think you went too far who do you think you are eric Cantona? like just you know, how dare you how dare you playing for our team get ideas above your station it was really interesting because I <laughs> I went to interview him when he was at Reading and I read out the lyrics to the <laughs> to the song, which is probably a bit cruel of me. But he said it was a brilliant song and he, he thought he was very clever and he, he didn't mind the song. What he did mind was the assumption of arrogance because he said there were players in that team who should have been on the list before him, didn't take the penalty. It was a penalty shootout. They didn't want to take it. He um, He felt he was the fall guy. He hadn't made any friends at Leicester. He said the manager, Nigel Pearson, didn't like him. Um, he was nervous as anything. And it made, he said, it made, looked like he was trying to be clever, but in fact, his leg was shaking. So it looked like he was trying to chip and he wasn't. He just couldn't hit the ball properly. He was so nervous. And I think that whole idea of he, that penalty was a summation of him. What a horrible time he was having as a newcomer in this country. Makes you realise we should not really... Um, be so cruel to the people who do miss penalties because they're exposed enough as it is. And we don't know what went on behind the scenes at Fulham because, um, you know, I'm not sure Lookman should have been taking that penalty. Really, should there are players in that team who have the obvious abilities mm. to, to do that? Um, uh, Mitrovic, I mean, I, he missed his previous one. I'm pretty convinced. Tom Kearney is the player, Alison. Tom Kearney is the player that I'm surprised didn't take the penalty because I have a thing anyway. I have a bugbear about on loan players taking penalties. I don't <laughs> think on loan players should have the responsibility of taking penalties, especially in shootouts. No, absolutely no way. When like you're not going to be there next season, no guarantee on that. But you're going to take a kick to decide whether we get promoted or stay up or whatever it might be or get to a cup final. Absolutely no way. Players on loan shouldn't touch them. But I feel for Adamola Lookman this weekend because he is a laughing stock for trying a Penenka penalty in that moment, in that situation. However, he didn't even take the worst penalty of the weekend. No one says <laughs> anything about Kevin De Bruyne. Let me tell you something. Adam Ola Lookman takes the same penalty the same way a thousand times. Five or six of them might go in. Maybe 10 of them go in. <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne <laughs> takes his penalty the same way a thousand times and he is never scoring. Absolutely zero of them will hit the back of the net. So why did, at least Adam Ola Lookman hit the target. I mean, do me a favour. <laughs> yeah, there's some kind of logic in there somewhere buried very deep. <laughs> but um, to be fair to Lukman as well, he's been supremely confident since he's arrived there. And he's kind of, I think he's he's given Fulham something extra and he's been playing really well too. So I really hope this doesn't dent him too much because he's, you know, he's had a bit of a, he's flitted around a few clubs and he's on loan from Leipzig now. And he, as I say, he started really well, I think, for Fulham. So... Oh, just to, to again, again, you just see his face, his little young cherubic face, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> just kind of going. You could see him going. Oh, oh that God. did play a part, didn't it? He did, he did look like a schoolboy. He wanted player. to cry. Yeah, and uh, you know, who'd been given the chance of a day out playing with the the heroes, and they'd said, "Go on, then." You know, it's your chance. You know, <laughs> have a penalty, and he fluffed it, and then they all suddenly turned around and went, "Who let this kid on the pitch?" Unbelievable. I think you should. I was, I was just thinking of another one I sort of seen live. Was it? Um, it was Peter Crouch, wasn't it, against uh, Jamaica when he, yeah, he he went for it and um, 
and ballooned it as well. But yeah, at least at least he did it in circumstances where you could have a chuckle afterwards. Yeah. Well, um, Steve McLaren, funnily enough, was on the radio earlier talking about it, and um, he said, you know, what did you say to Peter Crouch afterwards? And he said everyone was saying to him, "What on earth were you playing at?" And Steve McLaren had asked him, "If you add that penalty again, what would you do?" And he said, "I'd do exactly the same thing." To be honest. Gaffer, it's not my fault that he saved it. You know, he could have he could have dived out of the way. You've got the confidence, but you've also got to have the uh, you do have to have the uh, um, execution to, to, to then execute. I mean, it's you know penalty taking. I mean, it, it's, you know we can look at players and think this this guy should be able to take penalties. That guy should. But I mean, obviously, you know Dennis Bergkamp famously ninety nine. Schmeichel saves it and he didn't take one thereafter. I mean, it, you know, it can, it can get into the heads of, of even the very best, very best footballers. I mean, there's, you know, it's, uh, it's a whole mental torture that, um, yeah, I mean, well, I've, I've, you know, I've done it on a park pitch and it's, um, it, it, it can worm into your head. Never mind, never mind doing it in front of an audience of millions. And the new ca- the new camera angle that Sky gave us in the um, the game at the Etihad. Did you notice that, that that when they took a penalty, it was it was sort of directly behind the penalty taker, and it mm. the angle made it look made <laughs> made the goal seem three hundred miles away and very very tiny. And it it, it give, did give you some insight into how sometimes when the pressure's on things visually do alter your brain panics and things look bigger or smaller depending on how you reacted to a situation and it, it is it isn't an easy thing to take a penalty it really is not I, I remember taking a penalty and I couldn't I couldn't afterwards I couldn't really remember the mechanics of doing so it was like you were kind of in the, some other little state because of, I don't know because of the pressure around it and I don't I didn't even see the ball hit the net I just I hit it into the uh, my foot. I hit it into the right corner, and I saw the goalkeeper dive that way, and I looked away, and it was kind of so it was all kind of happening in slow motion, and I don't really have any recollection of the mechanics of taking the steps up to it and striking the ball. So you do kind of the pressure can do strange things to you, but at least you've got to make sure you kick the ball properly. That's the kind of step one, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I had a I had the Pepe Signori technique. I didn't run up to it. One step hit. Because I always felt that if I did run up to it, it would have gone into Rose Ed. So I always thought that at least I can't put as much power in my shot as possible if I only have one step. And and I was good. I scored two penalties in a shootout on one occasion. It, we I think we won it 13-12 and I got to take two. So there you go. Guys, thank you so much for being with me on the Game Podcast this week. A real pleasure as always. My thanks to Alison Rudd, Matt Dickinson and Gregor Robertson there. And to you for listening as well. We'll be back on Thursday. But remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of the latest news from the world of football with all the internationals to come as well. We'll be dissecting later on this week but you can go online search the times.co.uk forward slash the game and you'll be able to get yourself one month three we'll see you in a few days time take care